0: Good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you grab that and open it to Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20 verse 11 and following, Revelation 20:11 and following. All right, so we are in the last week of our essential series, and this morning we are going to be talking about heaven, hell, and the coming kingdom. Uh, Now, when I say we're talking about heaven and hell and the coming kingdom, I don't want to be misinterpreted to say we're talking about end times things, because that's not really what we're talking about. How the end times are going to play out is not an essential. I'm not going to be pulling out charts and graphs and things like that, okay, or any of that silliness, basically. Rather, I want to talk about the concepts of heaven and hell and the coming kingdom, as an understanding of those things that Christ has called us to and how these things manifest really the purpose of the universe. See, heaven, hell, and the coming kingdom aren't just God's kind of plan number two. They are the fulfillment of his creative impulse. In other words, we end where we began. If you were here as we began our Essentials series, the beginning point the first essential was solideo gloria, the glory of God above all things. That the creation was put into place and put into the beginning in order to put the glory of God on display. And heaven and hell do that. That's what they are. They are the glory of God made manifest. Heaven is the glory of God made manifest in righteousness and mercy and kindness and grace, Uh, and hell is God's glory made manifest in his justice and wrath and vengeance. Uh, So these things are not just arbitrary kind of ideals that God put in place to try to figure out what to do with the world once it fell into sin. They are the end culmination of all he's trying to do, and he's the end culmination of all what he's trying to do in us as well. We are going to heaven or hell, basically, for a completion of what was started in us uh, and what we have given our lives to, these kind of ideas. In order to understand those things, we have to kind of put together how this, this, these ages are going to come into their clashing point. When the Bible talks about uh, this age and the age to come, it does so in a duality. Right? The Bible speaks about this age and the age to come. The age to come separated from this age and that manifestation of God's glory in, those eight, in, the, in this age and that age coming into its fullness, its fullness of its expression. Uh, Paul tries to make sure we understand that, that Christians are to be a people that are future-focused we are to be a people that are future-focused. Now, Christians have done that and done it in some really bad ways at times. And I'm going to try to distinguish what being future-focused in a godly sense is and what being future-focused in a worldly sense is. Uh, for example, uh, the, one of the earliest Christian movements after the, the age of the apostles was called the age of the ascetics, the ascetics. And what the ascetics would do is believing, hey, there's only heaven. That's all that matters. They would go out and they would live in the desert or in a cave, or sometimes they would build platforms 30 feet off the ground in the middle of the city and climb it and never come down. And their whole point was we got to get away from everything. It's just us and Jesus. This world doesn't matter at all. They were ascetics. They were trying to get away from the world. That is not at all what Christ has called the Christian to. A Christian future-focusedness is brought into play because of a full understanding of the age to come. Something I hope I can bring out for you this morning. When Paul says in Philippians, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's giving the beginning points of those parameters. You and I as Christians are to live in such a way where we are focused on the world to come. It's part of our reality. It's part of our understanding of who we are. That this world is not our home. The next world is our home. That is our citizenship. And that has to play itself out in in various ways. Now one of the problems that we run into in being properly future focused is that the ideas of what have what is to come have been taken and in some ways um, romanticized in the world meaning world given worldly passions like heaven is going to be where all our desires are met where we get everything we want so we take our sinful impulses and and, and interpret the world to come through them. Heaven is not the place where all your pleasures come to pass that has almost no bearing in it. That's, that's just you taking these worldly desires and putting them on the next world as well, unhelpful. But another way that the worldly kind of picture of heaven has been influenced is an overemphasis on what theologians call the intermediate state. The intermediate state. And the idea of the intermediate state is what most people think of when they say you're going to die and go to heaven. So, here's the here's the picture. You and I, when we die, our souls go somewhere. But that's not the end of the story. It's only for a while. There's another part of the story, a longer part of the story that we are to be invested in. But that intermediate state is what happens after we die. When we die, we go to heaven and are with the Lord. Christians who are who come to the end of their worldly life pass on and their souls go to be with God. We can find this in passages, example, for example, like Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the the Lord, being away from the body, at home with the Lord, absent from the body, a disembodied soul. We will be with God. The Bible does not teach an idea called soul sleep which is you die in this body and then you wake up in this body again and you're in the, he- the, ki- the heavenly kingdom. No, it says you will go from your body and be absent from a body and at home with the Lord. When we die, we will be immediately at home with the Lord. Paul pushes us to long to be with God and to understand that departure from our bodies to be with God. Commonly, go to heaven, right? Philippians, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. Far better to be with Christ. Now we understand that. But I want you to understand that there are gonna be things that are happening during that time that are crucial to who we are going to be. When we are disembodied. For the first time, our hearts and minds are freed From a sinful flesh. And it's, I believe it, and here's the thing the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about the intermediate state. Most of the verses you know about heaven are actually about the the new heavens and the new earth. They're not about the intermediate state. There's very little information about it in the Bible. One of the things that it does tell us is it says in 1 Corinthians, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And the image that Paul wants to put before us is that first moment that you have with God. And however long you are in the intermediate state, is going to be about you learning who God is, who you are, the first moments of freedom of your heart and mind. It's gonna be about you subjecting yourself more to God and Jesus than you ever could in this world because of this world's fallen nature and this, in your own body's sinful influences. That time is about the, the subjugation of, the purification of, and the perfecting of your heart and mind. Being fully known, fully in God. Now, what will it be like there? Like, are we gonna be, you know, walking around, talking to people? We don't know. We don't know. Is it just you and God and alone for the whole time? We don't know. Now, if you're saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I read a book where some dude died and he went to heaven and he talked to his granddad, you know, I'm sure that's a good book. They didn't include it in this one, though, ironically. So I don't know (laughs) how far I would take that bird dog out in the field. Like, I would hold that bird dog back a little bit. Because we don't know what happens. We don't know exactly what happens. We know you will be with God. But that idea of being in heaven has taken such grasp in us that we don't run with it to the full ends of what the Bible actually teaches us. The Bible actually teaches us there is much more waiting us than just being souls in heaven. And it's the reason that we are to be a future-focused people in a very specific way, all right? We're gonna get to that. So being in the intermediate state, dying going to heaven, as we say it, is great news for the believer. It's horrible news for the unbeliever. The doctrine of hell is one of the most contested doctrines in the Bible. People don't like the idea they don't want any part of it. It's terrifying. And that's the whole point. The Bible teaches hell with absolutely no blinking or looking away or hedging of bets. If you wanna know who talked about hell more than anybody, it was Jesus. Not Paul, not John, not Luke, not one of the anonymous authors of the New Testament. Jesus Christ, our Lord, talked about hell more than anyone. And he talked about it with a variety of metaphors, each one worse than the one before it. The Bible talks about hell and gives absolutely no, no qualms about speaking about what is going to happen in hell. In our world, where we have lowered God down to the lowest vision of God that we could have of him, the love God who would never do anything to anybody, Instead of letting him be the God of the universe, like we always say, I don't see how a loving God could send people to hell. We never ask how could a just God send people to heaven, ever. We phrase the question and the questioning of God to suit ourselves rather than to indict ourselves. But if you're gonna ask one question, you better ask the other one just as powerfully. Jesus talked about hell and he made sure we understood. Paul taking that wrote about hell. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When Paul says away from the presence of the Lord, he means away from the presence of all that is good in God. But the presence of God's wrath and justice will very much be there. Hell is a place of punishment. One of the worldly conceptions of hell is that the devil owns hell, God owns heaven. If you die and go to hell, he gives you to the devil. False. Hell is God's, God is going to throw the devil into hell one day. Hell is God's. It is the place of punishment. A very popular idea about heaven is called annihilationalism, which is the idea that the people and the things thrown into hell will be destroyed and done away with. They just cease to exist. A verse like this might seem to uphold that. But what Paul is actually saying here is not they're destroyed forever. It means they are being destroyed forever. An active process of destruction that lasts forever. Right? Right? Here's where C.S. Lewis, I think, can be very helpful to us in giving us an understanding of what the Bible talks about when it talks about hell. If you read Jesus' metaphors about hell, uh, the worst ones, we think being thrown in a lake of fire and burning forever is the worst thing. I don't think that's the worst. I don't think that's the worst image Jesus gives of hell. I don't even think it's close. You have to get some years into you to get Jesus's worst vision of hell. Jesus's worst pictures of hell are what he calls the outer darkness. And he'll talk about there's a party or there's a wedding or there's a feast and we invited all these people, but they didn't come. So we got the people who wanted to come and they came in the feast. and Then we closed the doors and the people locked outside are in what he called the outer darkness. And he would say there, there is the weeping and gnashing of teeth which is just a very visceral way of talking about infinite regret. So you gotta live some years before you learn that probably one of the worst things of the human experience is regret. Now we use slogans and we wear shirts that say, no regrets" because you spelled it wrong. And we try to say, no, I don't have no regrets. But the truth is a regret can haunt you like nothing else. And what Jesus is trying to say is, you and I created in the image of God, put in a world that puts the glory of God in display, given the internal witness of conscience or the external witness of the preaching of the gospel. Those who reject all those things have rejected everything that is fundamentally human about them. And when God locks them into that disobedience forever, they are in an eternal process of being unmade from what they were meant to be. there is nothing but regret. Hell will be hell because of the choices made, not because God is torturing people. C.S. Lewis says, these are not mere attorneys or secretaries or moms and dads you're dealing with. These are eternal creatures, either becoming more Christ-like or more sinful. That were you to see them a, mil- a million years from now, you would either think they were God or you would think they were the devil themselves. We commonly say, how could a good God punish someone forever forever? for a finite number of sins. In other words, I'm gonna die one day, and when I die, there will be a, there's a number of sins I committed. I don't know what that number is. A trillion Google, like I don't know what the number is. It's a lot, but that's it in this life. How can God punish me forever for a finite number of sins? And that takes into no account that I will be continually sinning in hell. All the while filled with regret for the choices I made, but blaming God. All the while making choices in heaven that run against all the things God has shown me, and continuing in my hatred of God. You no, know, hell is a place of infinite regret and sin. And we have to realize that the Bible tries to teach us an understanding of hell that is a duality. With heaven and Matthew, Jesus talking about it says these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, one of the ways that the Jews uh, would do their kind of poetic comparisons, they compare and contrast ideals, So you can see Jesus is kind of being poetic here and he's building in comparison and contrasting. So these, the the righteous will go, uh, the wicked will go into eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. So eternal binds the ideas together, but the distinction comes between the righteous and the wicked. The main idea being that whatever the punishment is, the opposite is life, right? Meaning, if you think, well, the punishment only goes on so long, then the life can only go on so long. The degree to which God is going to give life to his people is the degree to which he is gonna punish those who aren't his. They're bound together. You don't have to go any further than to say what's going to happen is the full display of God's justice and wrath in hell. But heaven is going to be the full unleashing of God's goodness and kindness. Revelation chapter 20 is a great place to look at this. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. All right, so this age, the age we live in, comes to its end at the end of Revelation chapter 20. These are the last verses in Revelation chapter 20, and here we get an idea of what this life was pointing us toward. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says this. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. That's Jesus. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I found the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, Hades is just another term for hell. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And the death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's called the great white throne judgment and every one of us will stand before it. We will stand before it and we will be judged based on two books. One is the book of life and one is the book of deeds or works where everything we have done is brought before us. Now here's where this gets pointed and important. When God brings in this new life and brings in this new world. The very next verse in Revelation 21 is the new age. In Revelation 21, the very next verse says this Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So enjoy that beach while you can. It's gone, it's out, right? If you hate the beach like me, it's the best verse in the Bible. No actually what this verse is saying in the book of Revelation everything that is evil comes out of the ocean the dragon comes out of the ocean evil comes out of the ocean uh the sea was a metaphor for evil to the Jews and the Greeks and to me so when he's saying there's no more sea he's saying there's no place for evil to come from anymore He's not saying the new heaven new earth are not gonna have an ocean. He's saying there's no place for evil to come from. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, that the intermediate state comes to an end because there's a new heaven and a new earth. The going to heaven Christians will experience has never been you sitting on a cloud forever with a harp, right? The only people who are excited about that are harpists who are like, I've been practicing the whole time. I'm going to be Eddie Van Halen up there. Like, I'm ready to go. Not cool. The kingdom has always been you in a resurrection body in a resurrection earth. Now, if you don't see this all over the place in the New Testament, Paul is advocating for an understanding of resurrection, alive again in a new body. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Like to the person who says, well, no, we're not going to come back in our bodies. We're going to be spirits in heaven forever. You do know that your religion starts when a dude gets up from the dead and walks out of his grave. That's what the whole thing is. Alive again in a body, a natural state. Being away from the body is unnatural. God created us to live in bodies. It's just that in the new heavens and the new earth, our bodies are perfected. Our souls are perfected. Our hearts are perfected. Our minds are perfected. What will we do on the new heavens and the new earth? Well, it'll probably look a lot like this. I talked to a college student kid one time, and she said, wait a minute, you mean like we're gonna like go to work and do stuff? And that sounds awful. <laughs> and I said, we think it's awful because our picture of it is marred by the futility of this world. Futility is sewn into the very fabric of this era. But I want you to imagine waking up every day feeling great. And every person you meet that day is perfected in the image of God. They are kind, generous, patient. If you make a mistake, forgiving, they're gonna work as hard at a task as you are. And you're going to be able to pursue the things you were created for to their end. Every person perfect, every relationship perfect, the earth perfect, your body perfect, never tired, never sick, never hurt perfection sewn into the very existence. It, it's almost unfathomable. I was talking to a guy backstage. Like he goes, I don't know what I'll do when I'm not worrying. Like, cause worrying is 95% of my time now. <laughs> what will life be like when I'm like, don't have to worry anymore. That's what I'm a pro. I went pro in worry. Like, how am I supposed to give it up now? But the greater point is this. And this is what I want you to look at. There is no investment in this world that you can make seeking Christ's kingdom, seeking Him as His Lord, that does not pay dividends in the next. Meaning, all you're doing now is learning the baby steps of what life in the kingdom will be. You know, when you talk to somebody and they say, Well, I always wanted to learn piano, but I just never did. Now I'm too old to, because no, you have forever. Why not start now? I always wanted to pursue this passion, but I never did. Why not? Well, there's no time now. Of course there is. It's the baby steps, but everything we can do now can be put into the next world. And here's what's most important is to understand that one day you will face two judgments. The judgment of the book of life and the judgment of the book of works. If you are a Christian, your name is in the book of life. You are saved, not because of what you can do, but because of what Christ did. Your name is written and sealed, but then there's the book of works where everything we do will be judged. And it's from that book that God is going to reward his people who lived in obedience to him. We are not saved because of that book. Nothing we do alters that. That's Christ's work, Christ's glory. In fact, you'll have to give the glory to all the things in the book of works to Christ because you wouldn't have been able to do them anyway without him. But Paul in Corinthians gives a very, very pointed message. He says this, we will all face the judgment of works. We will all stand there and some will escape though all their works are burned up. They will live as a man who escaped a fire, he says. And the idea is this. God gives us all this opportunity to sow to his kingdom and to reap a reward in his kingdom. Jesus told stories and would say things like, I put you in charge a little, you were faithful, I will put you in charge of much. He says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, do you remember? Where they cannot rust or moth cannot spoil them or fade them. But if we build our kingdoms in this world for our own pleasures, for our own devices, those works will be burned up. We'll go to heaven, but only with nothing to show for these days except regret. Now we will be forgiven and we will be there. But being future-focused doesn't mean, Christian, go live in the woods. It means dig in. Dig in in kindness and generosity. Dig in in truth. Dig in in justice. Pursue the good of the city in which you live out of mercy and kindness. Go toward those who have are enemies or pray for them. Dig in and know that a reward waits those who come to Christ, who have pursued a life of a kingdom. I mean, it's what he teaches his disciples to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Okay, it's line two. Line one is glorify God above all things. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, which just means praise your name. Hallelujah to your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what this is about. It's about a people who begin to put into place those things of God because that's what the kingdom is. You can start living in the kingdom now. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, generosity, obedience to him, disciple-making, being fishers of men and women. A life that matters. A life that is eternal. Our God is bringing all things to Him. He says, I am making it all new, and I will be your God and you will be my people. The glory of God above all things. He saves us through the atonement of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through faith and by grace. He gives us what we could never get. We confess our sins. We understand them deeply rooted in us and beg God to forgive us and to show us how to produce righteousness. He gives the church as a witness both of his goodness in the world and as an encouragement to his believers. We are to be a people together. He takes his truths and puts them in his word so that we can find them easily on the top of the ground and sometimes dig meters deep into it to find the diamonds that lay there. He calls us to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And he brings us finally to a kingdom that can never be taken or shaken or destroyed. A life That matters because of His grace poured into us through the blood of Jesus for the glory of God and by the Spirit indwelling, imbues in us power to walk in His goodness, to confess our sins, and to build the beginnings of the foundation of the next world in this age. Glory to God above. (laughs) The essentials are the essentials because they are the foundation of the next world. And we glorify our God because of them. And let's do it together. Let's sing together. Will you stand? We're gonna pray. and We're gonna be led in a song to finish our essential series. If you need prayer, when we close our time, some of our elders will be here to pray with you. Please come. But right now as a church, we're gonna glorify our great God. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you for the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that above all things, you have given us a kingdom that can never be taken because it was granted by grace. It's a kingdom that we don't have to earn. We just put our faith in you. Your scripture, your word is an infallible guide to a new life and call us to reject the sin woven into our bodies to pursue righteousness, not so that we can be saved, but so that we can learn who you are. We see you dimly, but you can make the image even more and more clear, and we praise you for it. Praise the name of the Father, above all, immortal, invisible. Praise the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, incarnate, born in a manger, crucified on the cross, risen from the grave, reigning in heaven, and praise the Holy Spirit of God. Indwelling, the whisper, the wind. Praise the God of heaven. Praise the God of earth. Praise him in my heart. Praise him in this life. To your name alone, great God. Worthy is your name.